Hi guys, welcome back to the podcast. It's your host Sarah and today I have Kat with me who is an Instagram friend from Scotland, which is very cool. It's always exciting to see kind of the differences in people's like treatment and medical care team, mental health care team interventions in other parts of the world. So I'm really excited to talk to Kat today about a variety of things. Um some of which may include PTSD, BPD, um, the kind of impacts of those things on our health and also um, interacting with other people and kind of how we censor ourselves sometimes. So I'm really excited, Kat, to have you join us on the podcast. Yeah. So tell us who you are. Tell us who you are and kind of like what your journey to joining me today has been like. How did you end up here with me? <laughs> so I found the podcast maybe about um, about six months ago uh, when I sort of started looking into seeing about getting BPD the diagnosis. It was suggested to me in a way that was not particularly pathetic. But I kind of looked at it and I was like, yeah, you could you could be right there. Yeah, I have sort of since pursued that and got a complex PTSD diagnosis. A lot of that comes from my childhood. So from quite a lot of emotional and sexual abuse then and some things since then, including sort of abusive relationships and things like that. Um, and yeah, so I'm kind of leaning in and finding out how how it all kind of fits together I also have an autism diagnosis I suspect there's some ADHD in there as well I was diagnosed autistic when I was 30 which considering how I behaved as a child is quite surprising um <laughs> and uh yeah so that's that's my kind of vibe Awesome. So cool. So you received a lot of like this knowledge of yourself later in life. How overwhelming or or not overwhelming has that been for you? That's a, that's a really good question. In some ways, it became a relief at the time. The autism diagnosis, I actually, my partner at the time, I was looking into things for her. And uh, we I went as her support person. And at the end, uh, the late, lovely lady that we went to see, who we'd had a, been in conversation with for, I think, four hours um, for the assessment. And she just sort of turned around at the end and went, and you, you know that you are as well, right? <laughs> and um, I was like, well, yes, I did see how a lot of that fitted for me as well. And then um, so I actually kind of did it backwards. I had the conversation first and then sent in all of my kind of history. And then she was like, yeah, okay, definitely. And wrote it all up and that kind of thing. Um, and I think it's been more validating than overwhelming in some ways. I mean, in some ways it has been overwhelming, but I did a lot of, you know, I remember being on an MSN group in the early 2000s where you know, it was one of the first kind of places I'd seen anyone talking about PTSD for anyone that hadn't been in war. And it was just a whole group of people sharing papers and being like, well, this is not about my the experience I've had, but this is what, these are the symptoms that we're experiencing and connecting all of those dots. So, and then I think once I'd read, um, have you ever read Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman? 
I have not. I admittedly don't read much um, like long text books. Oh, I read I a lot know. of like, research articles, but I don't read books so much oh. anymore. I did, I did read that and it, it took me a long time to read it because I have various other things going on. But yeah, and it, I felt really, really seen by it. And I think when I listened to the audiobook of it, that kind of even came in even more by hearing it kind of spoken because I'm very audible. But it just, I think she was the first person to talk about complex PTSD and link, you know, link being in a, a war zone that might have been your home and how the result of that is the same. Yeah, wow, that statement is so powerful. The war zone was your home. I just like, can we just like let that sit in, right? Yeah, it's yeah. quite something. And I think um, like Bessel van der Kolk trained with her. So she's kind of way, way back in the, you know, I think it was like 94 it was published or something. But anyway, so I kind of, because I'd, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a scientist and I like researching stuff. So I'd, it was more, look, I know this is what I'm experiencing. But having had childhood of being told that what I felt was not like mine to decide, it's it's never validating and sort of comforting to have someone else turn around and say, actually, yeah, that that is what's going on for you. Yeah, big time. I so relate to that. Um, like like the learning of the diagnoses later in life is so validating, and then I become overwhelmed when I start unpacking it. But at first, it's just like, oh, my God, finally, like, I'm not crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I meant to that, definitely. So, yeah, or broken <laughs> or defective. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, this little body might be a little wonky, but it is not broken. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I, it's interesting because so in my practice and with uh, the other therapists that I work with, you know, like clients will talk about the term complex PTSD, but we're not mm-hmm. diagnosing anyone with the the term yeah. complex PTSD here. Um, I haven't allowed it into the DSM yet. Have I? It's not in the DSM five TR. And so, um, people refer to that term complex PTSD, but I haven't I haven't attended any formal training around it because it's like, we're just using a PTSD diagnosis. Um, And it's really interesting to hear you talk about the complex PTSD being kind of the combination of PTSD and um, what you use um, EUPD, we know as borderline personality disorder. um, And Remind me again what EUPD stands for, emotion. Emotionally unstable. Unstable personality disorder. So, yeah, I'm going to have to kind of like follow and watch and listen to some of the um, clinicians around me talk about, eventually we're going to have to talk about complex PTSD. I think it's quite new that they're actually diagnosing it because I think it didn't come into use until quite recently. Um, yeah, I've only been hearing that term the last like maybe 18 months or so and again like d- like formally clinically I'm not seeing it at all. So um, Yeah, I think I think probably putting it in the ICD-11s made it a bit more 
mm-hmm. have a higher profile. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So tell me, take me back a little bit to childhood, if you're willing and able, when did you kind of see some of the borderline specific symptoms for you and what parts of having BPD or EUPD do you kind of have to work really hard at regulating and what is like your treatment look like? Um, in, t- in terms of seeing things, I was always the kind of child who would like bottle things up and pretend everything was fine and then explode. Um, and that got me into trouble at school quite a few times. Um, but then I was, I was, also, I was very bullied at school, um, right from being very small. It was a very, very small school. There was like 24 of us in total. So it was kind of everyone. That's tiny. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, it was it was a weird. Quite niche situation, but it was easy to feel. I think that was quite influential in feeling like there was something wrong and different about me. Some of that came directly from parents perception of my parents which then kind of filtered down and some of it came from you know I <laughs> I was the kid in the corner like admiring all the flowers and you know play, playing little games with my horses and stuff and like lining all my horses up so you know I was I was interested in different things to what other people were interested in and then I, I'm just going to dive right in now. I, I first remember being suicidal when I was 10. And that was like very consciously suicidal and like self-harm followed quite quickly after. So that has been a constant since then, not always in action, but kind of daily in thought um, and has been quite addictive at times. In, I think that's how I kind of conceptualize it. And in terms of dealing with stuff, I do a lot of kind of. Med- I was quite lucky in that, aside from everything else, there was a sort of Buddhist monastery quite nearby where my dad used to work as a joiner. Um, so helping to build you know, things there, and so I would sort of tag along behind the monks and kind of help to change the offering bowls and by proxy learn about meditation and uh, so and like mindfulness and things like that so that's always been sort of almost entirely alongside um the issues I've always had that as a way to kind of settle my mind and that is very powerful also I kind of found that I need to move I need to if I don't walk every day then I'm in trouble with my brain um and being with horses has always been something that completely clears my mind in a way that nothing else does so I know that I need that in my life yeah animals are so powerful Um, 
Yeah. The meditation and the mindfulness stuff, it's like so easy to overlook, right? Because it doesn't have any kind of like immediate relief benefits. It's like, you really have to kind of practice it over time. And it works so if you work it, <laughs> it works if you work it and therefore it's easy to not work it. Right. And so like, yeah. And as I've been through all of those like subliminal brainwave stuff, which is also quite cool, but I think, you know, just the simple progression of training your mind just kind of wins out in the end mm-hmm. um and I think in some ways I was quite lucky to come at it from the eastern direction where you know they're quite they're less apologetic than kind of western mindfulness and it's like yeah your aim is to be mindful of whatever you're doing all the time <laughs> and uh so I kind of, I mean, obviously I don't achieve that, but I do kind of aim for it. And whenever I kind of remember that like whenever I'm aware that I'm not thinking anything, focusing on anything in particular, I kind of do like, okay, let's focus on a few breaths. And then that really helps to keep me present and not dissociated, which is great. Yeah. Big time. So And I mean, we know that mindfulness is like a pretty big component of DBT. What is the DBT world of Scotland like? Do you have you accessed DBT? What are your thoughts on DBT? Um, So I'm in the process of so so after sort of starting to seek diagnosis and getting um, the CPTSD diagnosis, um, I've now been referred to psychology for an assessment. And then they could decide to send me for DBT because my area is the only area in Scotland that actually has a DBT program, which is very lucky. That is. How big is Scotland? Um, I I failed the states and capitals test. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Because I I failed the states and capitals test in the fifth grade. So I don't even know like geography of the United Uh, um, States, let alone. Like, I don't know what Scotland is by. That's what we're working with here. Yeah. So so the, there's quite a lot of little areas because there's a lot of islands and stuff like that. But in terms of actual landmass, pretty small. Okay. Got it. So. Which is a long roundabout way to say that. I don't know how big it is either. <laughs> totally fair. But I'm just trying to imagine like. Can people mm. from can people from other parts no. of Scotland tra- okay, not allowed. travel to get to the DBT? Got it. Yeah. No. Okay. So you have to access services from the NHS area that you live in. Got it. Um, you can get referred out of area, but it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Okay. And so, how do you feel about potentially DBT? I'm quite excited about the possibility of doing it in person I have accessed um dbt online which I searched and searched and searched through a lot of things that were sort of 250 pounds a week and then eventually found um a course presented by someone in America and someone in the Cook Islands which I didn't even know existed um (laughs) somewhere in the Pacific um and it's online, but it also has a community and they do like video um, classes. And then you can, I have like individual coaching and group coaching through that as well. So that's, that's really cool um, and has been amazing in the period after um, 
sort of everything that kicked off getting diagnosed. So, yeah, yeah. Um, DBT is it works for a very specific type of person, I think, right? Like it doesn't work for everyone. It doesn't even work for everyone with borderline, but it's been very helpful for me and very helpful for Lori as well. So it's always mm-hmm. cool to yeah, hear. Yeah, I'm a big fan. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about like, you know, the kind of stigma that you talked about and the impact that stigma has for you. Are you partnered or are you single? I am currently single. Okay, cool. So like you're, you're facing what I experienced after my divorce, which is like, when you eventually return to dating, talking to people about all of this is like, so fucking scary. Yeah. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I actually lost a job around, um, the symptomology I was experiencing um yeah it was just basically just lots of anxiety lots of hypervigilance lots of um dissociation and just not being able to function from being exhausted from all of that and um yeah it was kind of like well if you're going to behave like a borderline then you can't be here (laughs) and uh yeah not like oh what can we do to better support you how can we partner together to like develop systems that work well for you just like see ya yeah Mm -hmm. yeah with bells and whistles on but um so yeah it was it was very much at the time I was exploring it it was it started off as I am gonna lose a lot of things that I love if I lean into this um and then it kind of became well actually I think I'm going to lose that anyway and I'm starting to feel validated by what I'm learning and then I kind of started seeking out you know things like your podcast and community and things like that around you know discovering that actually there are people who have similar things going on that I do and it's not just me being a defective human being yeah but I mean when the symptoms have caused such disruption in your life like losing a job right it's so easy to feel like that I mean I don't know how I didn't get fired from my state job because I was so symptomatic I'm so inappropriate. Like I was so inappropriate at times and God bless them. They just, they loved me. I mean, that's kind of the, the luck I have sometimes because I can be very charismatic. I think that like people have historically overpassed or overlooked some of my very inappropriate behavior, but like, I can't believe I didn't lose a job. And so when you not that I haven't lost other things because of my mental health, but when you think about like how big of a disruption in your life it can be to be mentally ill like this, it's easy to feel yeah. defective. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was new job, new house, new way of seeing the world all at the same time. It was a lot. And um 
Yeah, I massively struggled with it for six months. And we're now on month seven and it's starting to feel a little bit better. Okay, yeah. so this was recent. This was in the last year, it sounds like. Yeah. Okay. Um, how does that work for you? Do, can you get unemployment? Like, I don't know exactly what the systems are like there. Um. So, yeah, yeah, we can. So you can, um, you can apply for something called universal credit. And then if you are unemployed, you can get that for, I think, six months before you have to start actively job searching. Um, and but I actually didn't do that. I went and got a job in McDonald's. I am doing nights and then got a job as a courier, which is what I do now. Um, and that has kind of given me the distraction and the money that I needed. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been what I needed at the time. So that's that's how that works for me. How did that go? Talking to people in your life about the fact that you lost your job did did you talk about that? Did it like did that bring up a bigger discussion about your mental health? Um. So yes, I did. Um, there were so the person I was working for was also my friend, so that added um an extra flavor to that and so a lot a lot of my people that I spoke to were more focused on what had been said to me and how that had played out than on how I felt or why you know how I had been feeling um I am graced with quite a few people who aren't particularly into talking about emotions, uh, particularly of the self-harm, suicidal and distressed variety. So um, it was it was hard. I felt when I had to tell people, particularly because it happened to be a kind of dream job situation. And it was like, oh, yeah, you know, that amazing thing that happened. It, it Yeah, it's not happening anymore. And I felt massively like I'd let myself down, but also that I had misjudged the whole situation. And because of kind of past trauma, that whole question of, you know, can I trust my judgment and can I keep myself safe was very um, nuanced, shall I say. Um, so that kind of added an intensity to that part of the discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, are you like me in that? I kind of have this very strange default where I know that no matter what, everything in my life is like will fall apart and has fallen apart and I can lose everybody around me and my mental health can be fucking a disaster, but I will always make it. Do you have that default in you? Yeah. Even yeah, though it's I like, think... even though it's probably like 
I don't know. I guess it depends on what you define as make it, but I just mean like, I'll oh. always figure out how to stay alive. Right. And then. Yeah. You, I have resented yourself. that as well though. Totally. Like I've, I've been in that place where it's like, you know, I know that I could experience something as horrific again and I would survive it, but I don't ever want to go there again. That's <laughs> like, why can't I just fall apart <laughs> and be looked after? But it, it does give a sense of kind of, I'm starting to respect it as well now and kind of appreciate it. Yeah. I find it to be very, um, well, I don't even know that it's resilience. I think it's pretty distorted thinking in my in the the way I experience it because like I'm sure there has to be something out there that could possibly break me but like I don't know what it is because I just feel like I'm slowly breaking every single day (laughs) so like thinking about some big event anyways I was just wondering you know like because I have that underlying belief of like, it doesn't matter how suicidal I become, I'll always make it, or it doesn't matter who mm-hmm. leaves me, I'll always figure it out. It doesn't matter, you know, if I don't have a place to live or I'll make it through anything. So then when I do actually feel a little bit of fear of like, oh shit, I'm like, like, I'm actually like, like close to something that. I'm not, not in control of it's so disruptive. Yeah. Yeah. Being there. Yeah. yeah. That kind of, um, yeah, actually it, it is actually spiraling a bit close to that deep dark bit of despair. Yeah. I have that. Yeah. And I just, in thinking about your story of the recent job loss for me, that that would be kind of like the ultimate experience of abandonment or rejection. Right. Especially if you had these like relationships built with like your employer, if your employer was a really good friend and all of these things, like that would be so hard for me. And so I can only imagine what that experience has been like for you. Yeah. There, there is a lot of grief there and you know, it, I considered it a found family situation. And so that has a lot of connotations for me in that I don't generally like open up to people and I don't generally share my life that openly. So it was, you know, all kind of believe that something is going to last for as long as I wanted to but I really did there um and so yeah that that was really really hard yeah I um I've experienced a bit of that recently in my interpersonal life of this feeling of like okay, I'm finally going to allow myself to go to the thing that's really scary and believe that I could have it, right? For me, it's like, believe that I could have a sense of community, uh, a group of people around me who I could befriend and I could show up for and they could show up for me and with me. And then yeah, when it, in my personal experience recently, when that hasn't worked for a variety of reasons, it's like, 
fuck, I did it again. Like I let myself believe in something that wasn't real. And that it's also interesting for me because I'm at a place where I'm like, but this time I had a role to play, but I wasn't the cause. Right. And like, that's harder. Cause I'm like, I can accept when it's me. I don't know how to accept when I'm just sad and let down by other people. That is fucking devastating. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, exactly. Having to be open to the uncertainty of it all. <laughs> like I think for for me, that kind of belief that it was it was all me um, was definitely given to me, but also it meant that. I could just try and do better. And then if I did better, then everything would be fine. And, you know, I, I brought that into my marriage and that that didn't work there either. Um, but um, yeah, now it's like, actually, I do see that it wasn't all me and that I'm, you know, there are good things about me, but ex- exactly like you are kind of at the mercy of other people and your own ability to choose who to trust which is a bit scary. Yeah. I mean, that's where the radical acceptance for me is like very, very hard to, to -hmm. practice, although I'm trying. Right. But it's like, I would rather fuck my life up and start over 20 times before I just sit in the like, yeah, grief, like you said, in the sadness of like other people no matter how hard I try, aren't ready for me. Yeah. Yeah. I have so sad. Thing of, um, yeah, being too much for people. That's, that's a deep one for me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's that <laughs> dialectic um, between like being authentic and well am I just gonna be alone on some island somewhere (laughs) if I'm authentic because nobody likes who I really am sure oh trying to find the gray (laughs) trying to find the gray right so um will you talk to me this is self-serving but will you talk to me a little bit about your physical health and your experience because I'm in the midst of my own journey right now. And I was recently reading that people with undiagnosed, untreated autoimmune conditions are at a higher risk of developing personality disorders um, in a Mm -hmm. scientific journal I was recently reading this morning. And Uh I have a long, long, long history of um, autoimmune issues in my family. A lot of type one diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, encephalitis, some other things. And that's trickled down through the generations and it's landed on me and I'm figuring it out. But I think in our messages, we've interacted a bit about Mm -hmm. like autoimmune stuff. So can you tell me like what that world is like for you? Um, so my, the first kind of inkling of that for, for me anyway, was my dad getting diagnosed with celiac disease um and then so he went through that whole thing he had he was very late diagnosed um and then so I was kind of aware of that it it was a big upheaval in in the household because we kind of lived on homemade bread and like 
vegetables from the gardens. I was like, right, we're going to have to have this other bread now. Um, but then, and I really, really resisted being tested because I love French bread and cake. <laughs> I was like, no. Um, and then eventually I was tested and I do have that. So, so yeah, so that was kind of autoimmune question number one answered. Um, and then uh, three, three years ago, I just started reacting to hay a lot more than I had. I think it's actually soil that I'm reacting to. Um, and got diagnosed as asthmatic. Um, and then kind of looked into that a little bit more. And then I started, I think it was like a friend shared sort of her issues on Facebook and that was Sjogren syndrome and I read all of the stuff and I was like that is me which celiac causes a lot of other autoimmune and that's one of the yes. ones causes yeah and then so particularly the kind of the peripheral neuro, um, neuropathy kind of stuff where I get lots of pins and needles and numbness um in mainly my hands and my feet um and yeah so so I sort of started pursuing that and at that point my mother was like oh I have that and I was like why did this never come up um (laughs) but um yeah so then that that was very interesting and I looked into that some more and had I actually saved up to have a private appointment with the sort of country specialist because I had um, bloods taken. And so with with Sjogren's, apparently 30% of Sjogren's is seronegative, so it doesn't show up in the blood tests, but it would show up on, and they do like a lip biopsy to check what your, um, so how healthy your salivary cells are because in Sjogren's are... um, your immune system is attacking the secretory cells. So, but the rheumatology department in my area doesn't believe in seronegative Sjogren's. So I got diagnosed with fibromyalgia and um, quote unquote, probably some osteoarthritis. Um, And so that was where that stood. But then I had the private, prescriptions to come back on and they have agreed to kind of um prescribe me the meds for Sjogren's because um she diagnosed obviously I haven't had all of the tests but she diagnosed Sika syndrome which is basically Sjogren's syndrome without the proof of an autoimmune involvement so yeah so I have sort of painkillers and um something that increases um the action of my sort of secretion glands and um also something that helps with my lungs that I just got added in because um the breathing problems kind of continued and it kind of felt like I was like there was water in my lungs it was like there just wasn't the capacity there and that was causing sort of issues with so they were originally quite worried about my heart but then they were like well your heart is absolutely fine and it's like well then why when I sit up or move does it go to 100 and why is it now sitting at 90 rather than 
you know, something more normal. Yeah, and like since being on the new medication, my sort of my heart rate has gone down and I am not getting as dizzy or as fatigued as I was, which is great. Yeah, like the pots that comes from autoimmune stuff. Yes. Although I don't have the right kind of dizzy <laughs> for pots. Cause they were like because they actually did a 72 hour sort of heart rate monitoring and um, where you have to wear the monitor home. And they sort of said, well, yeah, your heart is doing some weird things, but not enough for us to be worried about and not in a pattern that would fit sort of classic pots. So, yeah, so it's it's an ongoing kind of thing. But I think the hardest thing about it is just not feeling very believed, which, again, is quite triggering for me in general. Yeah, I mean, they say the general diagnosis timeline is six to 10 years from when like significant autoimmune symptoms start to diagnosis, right? So I mean, that's... Which is insane. That's a long time to be feeling adrift. It is a very long time to be feeling invalidated by your doctors, to be feeling like shit in your body. But then also like that's enough time that the body then attacks itself enough and creates another autoimmune. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Well, so I, like I said, self-serving, my immunoglobin A markers are like 150 too high. So 65 to 350 ish are, um, like the standard range and mine is (laughs) almost 500 and the, which means positive for celiac and, um, Uh, that hasn't been confirmed yet by a doctor, but I had, when I was 23, a doctor told me that they thought I probably had celiac and mm-hmm. then the um, endoscopy and colonoscopy found bleeding ulcers yeah. because I had such a severe substance use history. They were like, nope, okay. you don't have celiac. This is just ulcers. And wow. now my thyroid is barely functioning. Like, 85 to 300 or something is like standard range for thyroid functioning. And my thyroid is at 85 now. And so um, I have to wait to talk to my doctor, but all of my tests are indicative of probably celiac and Hashimoto's and um, not just the, the thyroid hormone and the immunoglobin A, but my red blood cells are way under my Epstein mm. virus tested positive. Um, there was a couple mm. other tests that were like indicative of the things that happen after uh-huh. untreated yeah. celiac. Yeah. So the really interesting thing about celiac as well. So I had, so they tested me and they said, so I w- I've never been anemic, but then when I got tested for celiac, they kind of said, well, actually we need to check your cellular iron because and they checked it. And so I had a lot of iron circulating in my blood, but none of it was actually getting, well, very little of it was actually getting into my cells. So I was, I think they called it functionally anemic. Um, so that, that made a difference. Like I remember when I first started on like gluten-free food and stuff, which thankfully I get for free in Scotland. Um, the, it did make a big difference to the fatigue at that point, but then that has kind of since deteriorated and the breathing kind of came on as well and the numbness. 
Yeah. And so it's interesting because I actually was gluten-free for five years. My ex-wife was like very adamant about me maintaining my gluten-free diet. And I was as Mm -hmm. well, because I was like thinking that like the bleeding ulcers weren't the whole story, but I also Mm -hmm. in the middle of this time developed a profound restrictive eating disorder. And so then I was just afraid of food with wheat in it. And so I told Mm -hmm. myself that I couldn't have wheat. And then as I've kind of gone out of the disordered eating in the last two years and reintroduced wheat into my diet, everything is very, very wonky. And um, I mean, I'm not a doctor. I can't formally diagnose myself, but all of my blood tests are not okay. So we'll see what the doctors say. But like the, <laughs> the, there is a, um, undeniable connection between trauma and autoimmune Mm -hmm. and trauma and borderline. And so like, you can't ignore the relationship then between borderline and autoimmune, right? Like, and there's actually not a ton of research about it, but there is some peer reviewed research in indicating that there's a positive correlation between autoimmune and personality disorders. Mm. It's going to be interesting the next little bit of time, I'm probably going to be talking more about it on the podcast because I also have ADHD, which means hyper-focus. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's special interest. Eh? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a fa- it's a fascinating kind of thing. And yeah, I, I kind of ricochet between being very focused on it and very overwhelmed by it. Totally. Well, the mood, right? Like the feelings are so big. And so like the underlying health stuff I have to imagine for you is like mm-hmm. really impacting your emotions and then impacting your energy even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the, that there's a grief to that as well, a really big grief to that because my, my thing was running and I did a lot of hill running and now I can't run. And that is kind of heartbreaking, but I'm getting, you know, I'm also really grateful that I'm getting back to. So when I came out of hospital a couple of years ago, you know, I I couldn't walk like a hundred meters without having to stop and sit down. So, you know, I'm also really grateful that I can now walk and actually walk in, you know, proper hills and wild places again, if I do it really, really slowly. but yeah, so there's there's a big frustration there, but also, yeah, the, the times when I'm too fatigued to walk and then the next day I, I feel it in my emotions and my mood. Yeah, so I, I have to be quite religious about that. Yeah, Ugh, that's where the radical acceptance comes in. Well, my friend, I have to see my psychiatrist in a few minutes, so I have to let you go. But do you have any, like, what is the the takeaway that you want people to hear from this kind of episode about all sorts of things, your co-occurring mental health conditions and your co-occurring um, physical health conditions? I think the kind of the missing piece, I think, that is starting to cement itself in my life is I kind of, I use the kind of mantra, follow my joy, and I make sure that I do something even if it's just like going outside and looking at a flower that will bring me that every day. And, you know, for for me, it's horses and just making sure that that is a regular thing for me. 
and I think finding whatever it is that lights you up and you know bolsters your spark is you know really powerful and I think it is it is there you know I spent a long time feeling like I didn't have a spark anymore and it was all just very dark inside and you know finding that authenticity is very special yeah and that's a choice right like to go out and look for the joy that's an active choice like that doesn't just happen no well Kat it's been so wonderful to chat with you we'll have to bring you back on maybe in a couple (laughs) months and you can fill us in where you're at and maybe I'll have more updates for where I'm at but I have to say I feel like um a strong sense of community in in this chat. I'm so hopeful that you'll be able to access some DBT near you because it could be really, really cool. Yeah, it would. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey and We can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you and we'll see you next time.